oh, that's that's fun. Netflix just saw fit to send me a notification that Legend of Korra is now on Netflix. Oh, now on Netflix. Yeah, maybe maybe we should watch that. <laughs> Totes haven't burned through book one already. Yeah, we'll get there. Exactly. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello, and welcome to The Pie Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. And today, we are discussing Episode 6, Chapter 6, Imprisoned. The summary for today's episode is... Aang and the others find an Earth Kingdom mining town under the thumb of the Fire Nation, and Katara feels guilty when her actions lead to an arrest. There was no ooh this week. There was no ooh this week. I I don't feel an ooh after everyone. That's fair. There was a first this week. We have a first. We have a first? This is our first episode that doesn't have an article. What do you mean? It's just imprisoned. There's no art. There's there's no the. So far, everything has been the this, the that. Mm, yeah. Boy in the iceberg, the Southern Water Tribe, Southern Air Temple, the King of Amashu, Warriors of Kiyoshi, the Kingdom of Amashu imprisoned. Huh. that's that's a really different tone. Yeah, that's weird. How much like that one word the can change the whole tone? Well, it's less setting. Like it's more. It feels less omniscient third and much more like you know first person. It's a very strong stance. Yeah, like you could see an exclamation point at the end of it, which is interesting because I don't know about you, but I kind of didn't remember this episode very well. Tell me why. Why didn't you remember this episode too well? I don't know. I did it, it just it maybe originally it seemed kind of unremarkable. Mm. Maybe because late like I don't think anything from this episode really comes back in a super significant way later or has a greater ref- direct effect on the overall plot of the show. Like, it, it kind of stands on its own. I think it can kind of stand on its own, but I also see calls to adventure for some of our characters. And I see I see a few things in this that are unique. I think my understanding of why it might seem unremarkable is that it very much paints things with broad strokes. It doesn't go into, there's not as much gray area with this episode. It's very black and white, the good and the bad. It's very, it it feels more like a children's show. Well, it's also a standalone story. True. We do have people who come back from this story, though. Do we? Yeah. Does Haru come back? Haru comes back. Haru comes back. Introducing Haru. Haru comes back later and joins some of the big battles. Do you want to know why you don't recognize Haru? Why? Haru grows a mustache. Oh. Yes. Okay. That takes a while to come back. It does. I might forget about it between now and when we get there. You're going to have to remind me. I will. I will. 
I will remind you there. I was just going to talk about his call to adventure, uh, not necessarily the, the callback just yet. But I, I understand why you might not remember this episode, then, if you don't, if you don't recognize a character. It just, yeah, it just felt kind of standalone and unremarkable at first watch. To me, I think what's so important about this episode is that we see the impact on the ground of the Fire Nation in a new way. We see an occupied space. We see an occupied village. Fire Nation soldiers are a part of this Earth Kingdom village, that they are, you know, threatening townspeople and extorting them and taxing them and holding them hostage in their own lands. And this is the first time we see this because the Fire Nation, you know, they they would come in for raids in the Southern Water Temple and they cleared out the, the Air Temple, but we haven't seen their presence in Omashu. We haven't seen their presence in Kiyoshi. Kiyoshi was pretty much left out of things. This is our first time seeing Fire Nation soldiers on the ground in people's lives. We haven't seen them in Kiyoshi. They burned down the village. Yes, but they ju- they had just come there. They weren't living there. They weren't coming by once a week to tax them. Okay, I'll give you that. Yeah, these these Fire Nation soldiers are in these people's everyday lives. It's an occupation more than a than an invasion. This is the first this is the first time we're seeing that that it's not just like a, a smash and grab type of situation with with the places the Fire Nation is hitting. They are making themselves a presence in the places that they're conquering. Almost a a snapshot of what life after the war might be like if they win. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that is an important stake to set up. Yeah. The lesson for me of this episode is that it is going to take a lot more than just, oh, the Avatar's back to change the world to change the rhythm of this hundred year war. It's going to take a lot more than grand speeches of hope and the avatar and the avatar showing his face for people to, to, for people to reclaim their livelihoods. Maybe it was a bit more remarkable than I gave it credit for. Colton, I have a question. What's that? Why would they, they look at Haru earthbending. Do they say, wow, an earthbender? Are you serious? Why are you so surprised that there is an earthbender in the Earth Kingdom after spending time in a city full of earthbenders whose whole postal system is based off of earthbending, plus seeing King Boomy? Why are you like, wow? I have... No like, idea. It makes no sense. Aang like just had this crazy <laughs> awesome showdown that we spent like 20 minutes talking. We spent as long talking about that showdown as the entire <laughs> last episode. Yeah. <laughs> and these three are just like, oh, wow, an earthbender. He's out there in the wild. <laughs> they just spent two days with the greatest earthbender that ever lived. I... I- I don't know if they originally on their storyboard had this episode earlier, but 
yeah, that just seemed out of place to me. I was just like, really? Really? Come on, guys. Also out of place to me, for at least the Katara that we get to know and love, was her just walking up to a random person she doesn't know who's bending and says, Hi, I'm Katara. You're an earthbender. Pretty cool, huh? That felt so, like, and that Sokka's the one trying to hold her back and be like, whoa, maybe we shouldn't approach strangers when we're traveling with, like, you know, the world's most wanted avatar. And I'm just wondering, when do we see her start to put her guard up? Because she's so open now. I think we'll see her put her guard up when she has more of a reason to. Mm. Right now, she's experienced loss, but she has experienced loss from her perspective at the hands of evil. Mm. Not as a consequence of her actions. So she has no reason to not be open. Mm. Especially because she is such an optimistic, hopeful character. I mean, she's the heart of the group. And when you have that optimism in you and you have that hope in you and you believe that the loss that you have experienced is at the hands of evil and not as a consequence of your own actions, then why not assume that the majority of people that you come across will be just as open and friendly with you? That's a fair point. And as welcoming as she may have been when she saw Aang, who was another, you know, who fell out of the iceberg, is like, let's go penguin sledding. Yeah. I think that hope that Katara has really, truly is a privilege. Even out, even outside of her own world, her experiences with others have been, like you said, Aang coming out of the iceberg saying, let's go sledding. Kyoshi Island, where they said, hey... You guys are great. Here's a place to stay and food as long as you like. Yay, glad you're here. And Omashu, where, yeah, fear of death in prison for most of the time she was there, but also realizing that that was all a trick and a guise and a game and they really were welcome there. Like, she has not been anywhere in the world or met anyone in the world who was not a member of the Fire Nation who was not welcoming. Okay, I think that's fair. I guess I didn't see that before. She hasn't felt that imminent danger from outside the Fire Nation yet, so she has no, she has no, nothing to call back on. Yeah, the Fire Nation are the only threat in her life. Ooh, ooh, okay, huh? Okay, that makes more sense to me now. I'm gonna watch that though. That's something I want to watch in the evolution of Katara. Watch her slowly get jaded by the world. Yeah. I just want to, I want to see when she starts to kind of watch her back a bit more. Because she's very much a risk taker right now. Yeah. Takes a lot of risks. I really loved all of the colors of the Earthbender village. It was a lot of like warm tones, a lot of gold. Mm. It made it feel really welcoming and, and it made it feel like home. Yeah, it did feel very homey, especially when you're meeting like uh, Haru's Haru's mom, and he, he's saying you can come and stay in our barn. Like it felt it felt very welcoming and inviting, and that's so jarring to see that in an occupied space. Yeah, that you can have that balance. I think that's a really cool juxtaposition of 
they're in this sh- shop meeting this their new friend's mom and everything, and all of a sudden, you know, Fire Nation soldiers are at the door and threatening them, and it's a part of their everyday life. So much so that the mom, that the mom and Haru are like, like, okay, act normal, everybody, act normal, because this is something that they have in their life. This was almost two distinct episodes. Yeah. Okay. Because we spend the whole that. first half in in and around the village and the mine, mm-hmm. and then we spend the entire second half of the episode in the prison. Mm. And they establish the prison like you would establish the new setting and location for your episode of the week at the top of the episode. Yeah. We get two establishing setups, and we get two resolutions and and two conflicts that happen. This is two short episodes smushed together. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. No, because you've got the, the start, the rise, the fall. And then you've got it all over again with the prison, with the prison and the prison break. And I think also there's, it's really interesting you say smushing kind of two episodes together in a way, because when you have those setups for those settings, they're very stark contrasts of this like warm, homey atmosphere in the village and the kind of bustle of everything. And then there's the prison that is dark and cold and um, desaturated is and desaturated. And, uh, yeah, there is a very, like, jarring difference. Colton, you are going to be so proud of me because as I was watching this episode, I said to myself, I recognize that voice. I recognize that voice. Who is that voice? Is that? Why, yes, it is. The warden is George Takei. It is. It is. Sulu himself. I nailed it. I was so excited to have caught a voice and like gone, ta-da. I was so, also quick, like, I thought really fascinating of him as the warden is that, I mean, he's he's done a lot of uh, speaking about and writing about his time in in Japanese internment camps in, in America and him being the war do, voicing the warden of an internment camp really gave me chills because it felt like it came from such a deep place like it came from something um and it 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 honestly changed the episode for me to be able to identify someone in there and that's because I was thinking like Colton and going that is a familiar voice and it made it so much more poignant to me, uh, especially he says at one point, the, uh, he calls earthbending the brutish savagery that passes for bending among your people. And it just felt like chills ran down my body. So thank you for being able to give me that connection, like to think of voice actors and how they can impact your listening and watching of a scene. Oh my god, I'm so proud of myself. Yes. Did you happen to recognize the other famous voice actor in this episode? No. He sounded familiar, though. I think I know... Haru's dad, Tyro, is voiced by Kevin Michael Richardson. Who is this? He... He's one of those voice actors that's been in 
everything. Okay, okay. What what are some that I probably know? Uh, so his IMDb, and I'll link that, lists mm-hmm. Captain Gantu from Lilo and Stitch as, like, the okay. top most recognizable role. Yes, I know that one. Are you a big Transformers or Batman fan? Batman. So in the 2004 uh, Batman TV show, The Batman, mm-hmm. he's Joker. Oh, Yeah, he's okay. the not Mark Hamill Joker. Gotcha. And just so many other th- like I I'm not even gonna bother to the Gantu one is the one that sticks out for me and makes it click for me of like oh my god <laughs> yeah he's he's been all over the place yeah oh that's so cool oh I learned a fun fact about who plays Haru's mother and according to IMDb the voice of Haru's mother it the actress is the mother of Mae Whitman who voices Katara. That must have been nice. Yeah. Cute. The two of them getting to work together. Like a little scene. Cute animal alert! Let's talk about the animals in this episode. So, main animals are Momo and Appa this episode. I'm gonna... This is why I'm counting Momo and Appa every time, because... Not every episode are we going to be introduced to new cool animals. We didn't have any new animals this episode. No new animals. We shouldn't but... even have this segment in this episode. No, because I want to talk about Momo. I want to talk about Momo. I feel this is a vital episode for Momo because we're really getting to know this nonverbal character. When he tries to crack the nut and thinks, like, and the and things shake, and he looks at it, and for a moment, that lemur goes, did I just earthbend? And then he goes to crack the nut again, and things shake again, and he freaks out. I think that's a great setup for the wonderful joke when they go to do the big scheme of showing that Katara's an earthbender. And the guard yells out, hold on, I wrote it down, that lemur, he's earthbending. And Momo has to do a second look inward and go, is it me? Am I the earthbender? I don't recall, but some weird things have happened lately, and I really enjoyed that. He had to do that look inside because in his last life, he was an airbender. So I honestly started thinking about your Gyatso thing you brought up, and that's why it was so funny to me. Also, I think that guard is totes on another level, like just thinking on another level. Um, It was brought up to me that like, okay, other animals have their means of bending that we learn. But this lemur just has an existential crisis of, do, can I earthbend this episode? And that's why I got to give my, my chops to my props to Momo. Your chops and your props. My chops and my props to Momo. Momo wins this one for me. Sorry, Alpa. Try again next time. You know, there really has to be an upper limit on how many times you can win this thing. I saw a really cool thing on Instagram the other day, and it was asking, whose pet is Momo? Is it Aang's pet, or is it more Sokka's pet? And it showed a lot of the connection between Sokka and Momo, and I and uh, I've started to think about it a bit more because, again, Sokka has had has had a lot of strong interactions with Momo so far, and Momo brought him food when he was worried about it. And in the prison break, 
they team up against the Fire Nation together. He comes out with that boomerang, and Momo's collecting all the spearheads that that Sokka is cutting off the the spears with the boomerang. Thoughts on this? Momo is not Sokka's pet. Okay. Sokka is Momo's pet. Yeah, that's probably more likely. (laughs) I thought that was just the obvious answer. (laughs) But I was thinking in terms of, like, between Aang and Sokka, there is that strong... I never really noticed the strong bond between Momo and Sokka until I started picking up on it like this rewatch. So you touched on a thing earlier and then we talked about more of the episode than I think you were ready to at the time. But I want to come back to it. Okay. Katara goes on this big, hopeful, inspiring speech in the prison. In the prison. Okay, the prison one. Yeah. Yeah. And it falls on deaf ears. It falls on people that when they show the crowd, the only person that has any kind of like color to them is Haru and the rest are all just washed out, are all like devoid of life. Well, as she finishes the speech, like they they start full of life and color and as she finishes the speech, it's almost like her speech leached the color out of the scene. Mm. the warden even orders his men to stand down because he knows that they won't there won't be an uprising because the battle that Katara is trying to fight has already been won by the warden and the guards yeah and i think katara has such she has a lot of privilege to think to have that hope she hasn't while she lost her mother and has been apart from her father, she has still had the warmth and community of uh, the rest of the water tribe, whereas Haru's village has been beaten down over time, long periods of time, and are in these camps, are in this prison made of metal, over water, no resources, no control over their lives for as long as they can remember. And it's going to take more than just fancy. It's going to take more than inspirational speeches. And I kind of really love Avatar for doing that because in most other TV shows and kids shows, you can do a rousing speech and everybody bucks up and goes, yeah, let's band together. I mean, that's what the entire TV show community was based off of, doing a rousing speech and just pushing forward. And this says that's not how life works. People deserve more than inspirational words. They deserve to be able to fight back. And when Katara and Aang give these people a way to fight back, you see it first with the youngest member of the group, Haru, is the first one to fight back and to take that chance. And I think it's really notable that the first person to back up Haru is his dad. It's not it's not just any old person in the prison. It's his father who has that emotional connection to him and, you know, apparently Haru's dad is like the big honcho on the prison camp like he was, you know, ordering he was he was like, "All right, let's try and find more blankets for these people." But they were able to find a rallying point and I think 
while the rest of the village could kind of rally around Haru in a way. Haru did it for Katara, and he even says, Katara, you are the reason why we are free right now. You you shook us, you, you gave us the means to fight back, and you gave us the hope to fight back. It, it, it takes more than just the hope. You need, you need the you need the call to action. You need you need that action, that step forward, that risk. I think there's a really interesting and clever bit of storytelling that's going on around all of this, particularly uh, around Haru, because I I couldn't help but think and and notice this time through that Haru's function in the narrative is to serve as a a way to develop Katara's character. To a degree, Sokka's, but mostly Katara's character. Oh yeah, this is a Katara story. And yeah, and he does it by taking an interest in her and communicating with her and like having her tell us more about herself, but also just in who he is. Because he is another character who has been through experiences that are very similar to hers. And we, as the viewer, draw parallels between the two of them. And we, our view of Katara is changed by the things that Haru does and says. Because he's been through similar experiences to what she has. And as another layer on top of all of that, Haru's driving force as a character is his relationship with his father. He bends because that is his connection to his father. He bends because... His father bended. And and that's that's how he pursues that connection. That's how he copes with the loss. That's how he just keeps moving forward himself. But when we get to the prison, Katara can't reach Haru's father. She tries to reach him, but she can't. Despite the fact that she and Haru are very similar. Because she doesn't have that connection to him. But because she and Haru are similar, she can reach Haru, like you said. And Haru is the one to reach his father. So it's, it's, there's this... It's a chain of events set in motion by it, But it's Katara. also a circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a circle of, of inspiration and connection between Haru and Tyro. Tyro? Tyro? I think it's Tyro. Tyro? I'm going to say Tyro because it sounds like Iro. Because it's, it's the son following the father and the fa- father in turn following the son. I think it's really beautiful that Katara can help, uh, you know, she didn't just help liberate an Earth Kingdom village, she also, they w- are going to fight back. They are joining this war. So we had Aang as a catalyst for Kiyoshi Island and the those warriors going out to join together to fight this war. And here you have Katara being this catalyst for this village to go out and take things back from the Fire Nation. The tide is starting to turn. This is the very beginning of the tide starting to turn. And we're going to see these little pockets, and then they'll merge. Right, but even, even beyond that, if we, if we take it a step further, Tyro is indicative of not only... He's symbolic of both the life of the village and the prison populace as a whole. The, the prison populace is the life of the village. They're the... They're the same thing. Not that the benders are more important than the non-benders, but without both groups, the village is oppressed and, and doesn't function properly. There is distress and there's strife. And as a representative of the 
group of people that have been taken from the village, Tyro is symbolic of the village as a whole. And Katara cannot, in this microcosm, inspire and influence the entire village. She can't reach Tyro, but she can inspire and influence and reach the person who can. She is not the one to save the world. She is the one to save the person who saves the world. She's the catalyst. I love this episode so much more now just by arguing about this one point. (laughs) I think you and I are saying similar things, like just different ways. I think so, but I never realized that this episode is a microcosm for the entire show. Yes, yes. I talked myself into that one. I want to say another reason that you may have forgotten this episode is that it has the worst character that has ever existed in the Avatar universe. That old man who is saved by Haru and then turns around and turns him in. Like, old man, you could be dead. You should be dead. Oh, Stockholm Syndrome dude. Yeah, whatever that was. Whatever that was. That man, straight up the worst. Yeah. Like, that, I, I, I can't, I, it made me so mad. It made me so mad. And I think, I think. But I think it made you mad because people like that exist. I think what made me so mad is that I remembered it happening as a child and seeing it and going, adults are bad. Yeah, I get that. Like, oh, dumb grownups. And then as an adult rewatching it and going, Oh my god. Adults are bad. Dumb grown-ups. And seeing it again like I I guess I thought on some some rewatch I will start to understand why the old man does it and I'm still not there yet. I think I'm going to need like another like 40 years of being jaded to eventually understand it, but I'm not there yet. He does it because in his mind they've lost. They're not in a hundred-year war. The war is over. But, like, how is anybody gonna know? How is anybody gonna know? And if he's not a bender... No one's gonna know, but maybe, maybe, if he shows a bit more loyalty to the Fire Nation, he might... Get out of paying his taxes. Oh, God. (sighs) Okay. Fine. I don't like it yet. Maybe he's a bender? And he was waiting... For them to leave so that he could bend himself to freedom. And so if he's a rat, then he's less of a suspect for being a bender because he rats out benders. He's loyal. Fine, I'll think about it, but I don't necessarily like it yet. Actually, I like that theory. He's a rat. He's a rat. He's on the inside. He doesn't want to blow Haru's cover, but he has to. That's what that's that is the untold episode of Avatar the Last Airbender, where in fact this little earthbender village was reliving the events of the departed. Hey, and maybe that's that maybe that's why the uh mind collapsed in the first place. Earthbending gone bad. You like him more now cuz now he's not the evil old man. Now he's Billy Costigan. I don't like him more. I don't. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I'll see if anybody else like is worse personality-wise for me through this whole series, but this guy is seriously on my nerves. <laughs> You want to talk about this battle? The battle? Ooh, okay, let's talk about the battle. The battle at the end? Because, like, we always talk about the battle at the end at the end, so let's talk about the battle at the end. We do. 
I was so I was kind of really excited about the prison break because while they did an attempted prison break on Aang, the really like Sokka and Katara didn't really like get to do the prison break part. It was more Aang escaping and them and them being his getaway ride. Whereas this was like a big prison break, and I love. I'm a sucker for a prison break episode, and there's so many. I love that they did the heist movie thing. Yeah! Where Sokka's like, all right, here's the plan. And like he does the voiceover of the plan, and we see the plan of the plan, but it's not the plan of the plan. It's the plan being put into action. And this is the start of Sokka being the mastermind. I love it, how he's like, that was a pretty good idea with like the Vents Katara. Let's try and take that to a bigger scale. Yeah. It's beautiful. And that's and that's what I love about Sokka's mind when he when he plans like that is he takes that small thing and he's like, Can we amplify it? Can we make it bigger and see how that works? Does that a few more times. I'm gonna point it out every time. Please do. I'm I'm digging it. I'm liking it. You'll be proud of me. I took a note about this battle. Ooh, okay. You know what my note is? What? Boomerang! Boomerang! Sucker pow! Boomerang goes through, takes out all the fire weapons. Like, what a great weapon. Just lops them off, and then, like you said, there's Momo running around collecting them. Yes! That boomerang is honestly such... It's such a different weapon, because you don't really see boomerangs being used as, like, weapons in other shows as much. I really thought you were about to say you don't see him coming. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that too. Well, most see them coming. Zuko doesn't. Zuko. Most Fire Nation do not see boomerangs coming. It's the helmets. They're so goggles. Yes, exactly. But uh, that boomerang is just so fascinating to ship to shift up the dynamic i'm so proud that you made a boomerang note that boomerang made me so happy and <laughs> that move that that haru does um with with tyro where they take like all the little pebbles and they turn them into a boulder yeah and they make like a mortar out of it oh such cool earth and i i love that we're seeing creative uses of earth bend like really creative bending on all fronts but Especially with, I mean, we haven't seen as much earthbending as the other three. Yeah, I think we saw, I mean, we saw kind of the outer limits with Boomy in a way. Like, or at least like what the outer limits are so far in uh, Earth in the Earth Nation. And it's really cool. This is a really cool to see people work together. Yeah. To, to build walls and to, and to create together. I love that. Did you see Aang did the Aang did a little uh, swirly to like shoot rocks out because he can't earth bend yet, but he's gonna he's gonna still shoot rocks at people. Did see that, and I love how even though he can't earth bend, he's using earth and air together mm-hmm. in creative ways. I feel like that's that is a part of what makes him the Avatar, but that's also part of just what makes a good bender. Yeah. Is not being limited to just what you can do with your element and how you can creatively work in other elements and blur the lines between them. To adapt those styles, those become the strongest benders. And what's really funny that I noticed about Haru when uh, 
they start this fight is they like turn to they one little pebble shoots off and they turn to Haru and Haru is turning the pebbles around in his hand a la Aang with the marbles, but he's earthbending. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. He does the marble trick. I'm not saying Katara's got a type. <laughs> <laughs> but she do. And it's but marbles. She do. <laughs> See what I noticed about Haru's bending was right in the beginning of the episode when they when they ca- like catch him in the act and he goes to run. That move that he does where like he collapses the little gorge and then jumps over the rocks and closes the tunnel behind him almost, that does not look like any of the earthbending we've seen up to this point. Like so far, so much of the earthbending has been like very strong stances and, and rigid motions with your your limbs. You know, Boomy Boomy fights with his shoes off to deepen that connection and he never really leaves the ground like he's He's planted firm like a stone, but Haru is nimble and like flies through the air. I almost wonder if it if it's so I have two theories on that. If it's a regional thing, if there are certain different styles, especially because the Earth Kingdom is so big, so huge. If there are certain styles of earth bending to localized to different areas. And I know we see that with the water tribe and uh, and water bending, but I'll be curious to kind of look for that now that you talk about that in in earth bending. And the other idea um, that comes, you know, kind of fresh off of rewatching Korra is is it a generational thing? He didn't have his his dad there to show him some of those big stances. So was this him just trying to figure it out and his his body is more adapted to quick and nimble because he's supposed to be hiding his bending. So if you're doing big, strong stances when you're trying to practice a forbidden form, you're more likely to get caught. You're a sitting turtle duck. But if you're more tight in your form and you're a little more loose in your form, is it easier to hide? That was my thought. Okay. That more along the lines of, you know, he he learned kind of some of the basics from from his father, but then his instruction was kind of abruptly halted and he tried to continue it as best as he could, but it's not going to be along the lines of tradition because it can't be because there's no one to teach him that. He's improvised and he's right. like what works, what sticks. And maybe he's discovered some new cool tricks. I don't know about you, but that initial jump looked pretty inhumanly high i was so cool he really kind of like it felt like he pushed himself up up in a way i have a theory yeah like maybe he's not so much bending like earthbenders frequently we will we do and we will see them you know lift earth and throw it they do that you know they stomp the earth the boulder comes up they punch the air in front of it and the boulder flies away that's like signature earthbender move we see it in the intro to the show every week so clearly they can, you know, lift Earth up. Is Haru, instead of lifting Earth up, like, bending the Earth but keeping it where it is and bending himself around it? Ooh, I kind of like that. Ooh. Maybe I'm crazy, but, like, that's... I'm picturing, like, a trampoline park, like, when you're running across them and everything, like, you know, to kind of give yourself a spring forward. Yeah. 
And because it's more nimble, it's it's oh, I makes me want to makes me want to look at it again. <laughs> what happens if an earthbender instead of trying to lift a boulder tries to move the earth? Does the earth just not go anywhere? Does like is it like when you spin in a circle, a tiny fraction of your of the momentum is tra- like all of the momentum is transferred, but you're so tiny in comparison that it's effectively nothing. Colton, this makes me want to watch this again. This episode that you described as unremarkable. Or is it like, you know, is it purely Newtonian where the Earth can't move so you do? I don't know. Oh. Relativity and bending. I want to look into this. (laughs) I'm glad that you pointed out the difference of the bending style for me because I think I've noticed it in water bending. I've noticed it... um, in firebending too, because we've seen the Agni Kai, we've seen two firebenders fight each other and have a little bit of it and have some different styles to it. So I think that's the next step, looking at the earthbenders and see how, how their differences are. Because we, we haven't seen earthbenders fight each other yet. We've seen them fight together, so. Yeah, and I think because each bending style, like because the the directors and the creators have gone on record as saying that each bending style was specifically influenced by certain schools of martial art that in instances where we see bending that is outside of whatever the normal style is that that to me just has to be intentional yeah it has to be intentional and it has to be purposeful mm yeah and maybe it's just you know in this instance them trying to show that Haru doesn't have the traditional form of teaching. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out. We can argue about it. You can fight me on it. (laughs) And I will. Is there anything else we haven't talked about? I feel like we kind of hit everything. There's that one little bit at the end we didn't talk about. Yes. I don't have much to say on it, even though you expect me to say a lot. I don't. I expect you to say a lot, but... No, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's my boy. Zuko picks up the necklace. Thus began the Zutara shippers. <laughs> I mean, I just wrote that he picked up the necklace and, you know, he recognized it and he knows who he's following and he's on their trail. Yeah. Yeah. He's on the trail. Yeah. It's a really good tracker. Thank you for listening to The Pie Show. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash six. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us reviews. Rate us. Rate our podcast. Five stars. All around. Woohoo! Also, tell your friends about us. Tell your friends. Share it. Scream it from mountaintops. Just straight out into the void. And if you have anything you want to say to us, you can either tweet us at The Pie Show or send us an email if you have a whole lot of things to say. We love emails. You can email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. We love emails. Tell us your thoughts. No thought is too small. No thought is too big. Send us your emails. Yeah, we'd really like to know the difference between a bison and a buffalo. Yeah. I think our last time we asked about responsibility versus duty. So if you have thoughts on that still, definitely want it because we're going to be discussing that more next episode which episode is our next episode uh next episode is oh it's the spirit world one spirit world 
Oh, I'm going to have thoughts. Oh, I am all about the spirit world jam. This is where my destiny comes in. Team Destiny. Destiny's child. What is the difference between a buffalo and a bison? I don't know what the difference is between a buffalo and a bison. Now I got to look it up, Colton. I should have looked it up beforehand because I knew you were going to ask me this. And I was going to ask you this. And it was going to see... It was buffalo versus bison. Google search. I don't think this is going to help me. Contrary to the home, contrary to the song "Home on the Range," buffalo do not roam in the American West. Instead, they are di- indigenous to South Asia and Africa, while bison are found in North America and parts of Europe. Bison are the hipsters of the two animals, sporting thick beards. Buffalo are beardless. I can't believe that I just read a Britannica article that calls bison hipsters. Well, Kelly, did you know that bison have large humps at their shoulders and bigger heads than buffalo? And yes, they do have beards, as well as thick coats, which they shed in the spring and early summer. So he is truly a flying bison and not a flying buffalo. If you want proof, look at the horns. Get the horns. Okay. Well, now I've learned that, but I just really love that. Like, I, again, brilliance of the show is that you can have this really dark, scary moment with this creepy warden, and these two guys get flustered in front of their boss and are like, uh, is there a difference between a buffalo and a bison? Does it, uh, really matter right now, sir? I think we've got, like, a prison break on our hands. It's almost like weirdly Tarantino-esque. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was an odd moment, but it was a moment of levity needed. Yeah. You know how buffalo. else you can tell the difference? How else? Well, you see buffalo buffalo, buffalo buffalo buffalo, buffalo buffalo buffalo. That was seven, right? That was the sentence. I don't know how many are in it. The sentence is supposed to be seven buffaloes. Thanks, AP Lit. <laughs> that was eight, but it still works grammatically. Does it? Yeah, eight works grammatically. Okay. It's just you're adding another level of specificity that all of the buffalo that are buffaloed by buffalo are in fact from buffalo. Mm. Mm. As opposed to leaving a bit of ambiguity that some of the buffalo might be from elsewhere. Bison, 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 bison. Bison, bison, bison. That doesn't work. It worked for me. What did the buffalo say to its kid? What? Bison. Oh, that's sad. 